We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon and we're doing Politics Friday and and we're going to go off on a new topic today, the French Revolution. Is that correct? That's correct, Hampton. This, you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt because this is going to be the wildest ride we've had yet. Oh, my goodness. I got to open to the right chapters of the stuff I want to read. But it's, um, oh, my gosh, it's just jaw dropping. So we'll have a great time looking at this. Part of it is it's almost a natural step, Hampton, from, you know, talking about the American founding fathers to then contrast this with the French, you know, setting up their republic, which was very almost contemporary, contemporaneous with the U.S. So right. but very, but markedly different. You know, just for starters, we'll get into a couple topics to set this whole thing up. But for starters, uh, remember the Americans rebelling against the uh, British king had written demand. You know, they're constantly in contact with him saying, hey, we need this. We need that. You're doing this. We don't like that. And so on. Right. They're constantly putting forth their grievances and none of them were met by the King of England with anything other than just disdain. And he'd, he'd do the exact opposite of what they asked. Yeah, and we, we don't think about that because we're in an instant society, but they had to get on a boat, right? Go, go across the ocean, right? ask the question, then come back, say he said no. <laughs> and what did that take, six months or a year? Yeah, it, but he said no to everything. And it, in one way you could almost summarize it is the Americans did everything they could to not rebel. Yeah. In contrast, Louis the 16th, Louis Capet and his spouse, who was a very interesting character, Marie Antoine, right? And Antoinette, Antonia really from Austria, but you she know, was one that said, let them eat cake. We'll get to that. Oh, I, I, that's going to be critical. She never said that. No, that's no, no. That, well. I know, I know, and it's it's a really interesting little study. Well, because... Gary Larson did, doesn't know that because <laughs> he he's got a little far side comic where they're hauling her to the guillotine, and she goes, "I said and ice cream. I said and ice cream." <laughs> Yeah, well, she's been painted a certain way by the historians, right? And right. She, she was actually very interesting and by many accounts, really upstanding. But we, we, we'll look at that. I don't think she ever said that, but, but we'll look at that whole issue. But my point was going to be Louis and Marie assented to every demand the French people had. Hey, King, you're not going to you know, make the law anymore. We are. Okay. <laughs> and they still went ballistic so it's quite the contrast that the two revolutions and uh, a further point before we dive into some real details it's very hard to find um, college courses or beyond that really focus on the french revolution 
obviously in a history department, you know, that's a significant part of history. You have to cover it. Very few departments across our continent cover that well. Most of them give it lip service. And when they do cover it, it's uh, not sure how accurate it is. I have listened to the whole, a whole college course on the French Revolution. You know, you can get stuff. I get stuff from the uh, teaching company. And that, that company produces lectures by whom they perceive to be, you know, some of the best lecturers in the land, college lecturers in the land. And then they'll produce a course and you can get it for maybe 40 bucks or something. And then, then you just listen to it on your phone or, or wherever you want. So I remember listening to the French Revolution. I, I forget who was teaching it, a woman, I forget what college, might've been in Wisconsin somewhere. And that wasn't nearly uh, the perspective I would have taken. Now, obviously, when you have kings and peasants, you know, you're going to get a lot of abuses there. No one minded, no, no other country minded the French throwing off the leadership of a king. They, they understood that, but it was not what it had to be. And uh, one famous comment on the French Revolution, one of the primary, primary French historians, his final comment was, the French Revolution devoured its own children. <laughs> and, and we'll look at that. So recall, as we went through the American founding fathers, very few of them were pro-French Revolution. Very few. At, at yeah, best, I they, think it was... It might have been Madison who was commenting on the morality of the women. Yeah. And, and um, he, he was made a point about how immoral the French women were. Mm -hmm. yeah, how important we'll see that, that was to the revolution. Yeah, we'll, we'll look at all those things. So let, let me just dive into it. I want to set it up this way. Anytime you're, you're doing a historical study, couple things are important primarily. One, you can't cover every single thing that happened during a, a time frame, right? So imagine the book of, in the Bible, the biblical books of First and Second Chronicles. Well, that's covering, you know, genealogically that goes back to Adam, but basically that's covering the, the time frame from uh, Israel's monarchy. So just rounding off numbers, you know, that's 1,000 to 600. So you're, you're covering 400 years. Well, the chronicler does that in what would be today's equivalent to 40, 50 pages. There's right. no way, there's no way you could do that. It, you know, really cover 400 years, it, as in give you every detail, every person, every development, in less than 4,000 pages, I wouldn't think. So he did it in 40. So obviously he has a perspective and he's being selective about what he looks at and so on. Well, so it is with the French Revolution. We're not gonna cover every person, every detail. I mean, it would take us, you know, the rest of our podcast days, Hampton, to do that. So we're gonna cover it from a certain perspective with, which I'll get to. So to set the table, just to, in a very broad way, you need to look at sources. What sources are you gonna use? And you need to look at what perspective are you gonna look at that period of history from? What questions are you trying to answer, for instance? So with Chronicles, let's go to one of our favorite authors, Eugene Merrill. He has a good book on the uh, First and Second Chronicles. It's in the commentary series, The Craigle Exegetical Library, a commentary on First and Second Chronicles by Eugene H. Merrill. So the first issue that I want to turn to in Merrill, he does a great job on the sources. So imagine the biblical author that we just call the chronicler. Um, 
he's going to write this 400 year history. So he's going to have some sources because he wrote after that history had taken place. Not sure the exact date of Chronicles, but it was after 600, probably after uh, Ezra and Nehemiah came back. So, you know, he's after 500, 400, somewhere, who knows? But you understand what I'm saying. He's looking mm -hmm. way, way back. Like if you looked back at the beginning of our country, you're, you're going back 240, 250. The chronicler's right. going back 500 minimum, right? Just, just yeah. to, to put it in perspective. So he needs sources. When we say, when we use the term inspiration, we don't mean that the biblical authors didn't use sources. We don't mean that God dictated every jot and tittle of the scriptures. Rather, God <coughs> superintended their study and work such that what they produced was exactly what he wanted them to produce in such a way that that inspiration extends to the jot and tittle, but it wasn't dictation. Right. It, it was superintendence. So the chronicler uses sources. So let's read Merrill talking about that. Within the major and minor sections just enumerated are embedded the sources upon which the chronicler says he depended. These will be isolated and discussed fully in the exposition, but for ease of access, the principal ones are listed as follows. So I'm going to read a list of the sources the chronicler used that he mentioned he used. He may, he may have used other stuff and not mentioned it, but these are just the ones he mentioned. And all of these that I'm going to read have biblical references to them, but I'm not going to take the time to read those references. I'll just reference the sources. Okay. Number, number one, the history, the historical record of King David. Number two, the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Number three, book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Number four, the book of the kings of Israel. Number five, commentary on the book of the Kings. Number six, visions of the prophet Isaiah. Number seven, the history of Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. Number eight, the prophecy of Nathan the prophet, the prophecy of Ahijah, the Shilonite, and the visions of Edo. Number nine, the history of Shemaiah and history of Edo. Number 10, the commentary of Edo. Number 11, the history by Jehu, which was inserted into the book of the kings of Israel. Number 12, a history of the seers. Number 13, the early chronicles of David. Number 14, the laments. So those are just the ones he mentions. Mm -hmm. So obviously using sources. Second, there's a very definite perspective that he shines on those sources. So when you're reading the book of first and second chronicles, that chronicler is really focused on the house of David and the renewal of the covenant with David. Um, he's also focusing on the restored temple. He's also focusing on, um, well, simply a number of other things that you could list, you know, three or four things. But he's clearly looking at the that 400 plus year history through the, those lenses and trying to let you come away as the reader with a really sharpened perspective on those things because those issues are going to be what drives the kingdom of God forward. Okay, okay. that's clear when, when you read those books. So when we look at the French Revolution, 
we're going to look through the eyes of Ann Coulter. Now, that might sound like, oh, boy, you're really stacking the deck. Uh, she's a very good researcher, actually. And I'll skip most of the parts where she's just pedantic. You know, okay. she, she can really sharpen the knife and put it in, and we don't need that so much. Um, but we just need the historical facts. So first, let's look at her sources. And just so people know, when uh, you, you find the sources in the footnotes primarily, and then at the end of the book that has research in it, there will be, you know, a list of authors and a list of resources. But you can tell which are the primary ones for the author because they're going to be in the footnotes much more often than the other ones. So I just want people to know, I'm one of those guys that actually reads those footnotes, right, to make sure that what you're getting really is what's being cited and that that data is real and that that data is accessible. Here's why I'm belaboring that point. One of the greatest defenders of creationism as opposed to evolution is Michael Behe. And in, in my mind, he's written stuff that's never been answered. Right. And it can't, it can't be. I mean, his points are just so strong. And yet, uh, he's prominent in biochemical analysis. And, you know, in, in our country, he's, he's a, a prominent professor. So he gets attacked in books quite often. And so when someone's making a point contrary to Behe, you know, they'll list a footnote and then all their sources for why they think Behe's wrong. I've read many of those. Their footnotes don't say at all what they claim they say. And maybe when we get into Behe down the road, I'll, I'll point that out in detail. But just because something's footnoted doesn't mean that's right. Okay, it just is a reference to the sources they're using. Then you got to go back to the source and see if the source itself is correct. Yeah, I remember... Like Good rabbit trail. Um, yeah, yeah. Fauci said when remdesivir came out, he cited two sources saying that it worked great with uh, Ebola or something like that. And I don't remember who the doctor was, artists. He went, looked up the footnotes and said, those studies said just the opposite of yes. what he claimed. Yes, You've, you will see that in medicine. And that'll lead us to a different discussion later on as well. But you will see that you got to you can't just a footnote doesn't prove anything. Right. It's it's a way to research stuff, but you got to go track the footnote down. So anyway, the point I'm making right now is I've done that with Ann Coulter. And her sources are good and she's quoting them accurately. So here's who she's reading to get at her perspective on the French Revolution. Gustave Laban, whose book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, is critical for her. She cites him all the time. And that's a really interesting work. She cites Christopher Hibbert, The Days of the French Revolution, about, you know, that's the historical detail of the French Revolution. She's going back to Alexander Hamilton's work. She cites Stefan Zweig on Marie Antoinette, the portrait of an average woman. Huh. <laughs> she cites Michael Kennedy, the Jacobin clubs in the French Revolution. She cites Louis Goldsmith Stewarton, the female revolutionary Plutarch containing biographical, historical, and revolutionary sketches, characters, and anecdotes. That's a good work. She cites E.L. Higgins, The French Revolution as Told by Contemporaries. So those are her main sources that I'm familiar with. Obviously, there's lots more sources in there, okay. but... I can vouch for those sources that those are accurate. And when she cites them, they're good. I mean, she's, she's citing them accurately and they, they are accurate in what they're saying. 
one last thing to set this up. <clears throat> this is a famous passage in Second Thessalonians, and it's ripe Hampton for debate. We are not going to debate it, but you'll see why there's debate about this. So Paul, writing his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, says this in starting chapter two, verse six. And I'm reading, by the way, I'm not reading the net today, Hampton. That's at my office. I'm, I'm not in my office this morning. So <clears throat> this is the ESV. So here's Second Thessalonians chapter 6, verse 7. For the mystery, oh wait, and you know what is restraining him now. Let me back up because we need to know who that is. Let's just start at the beginning of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. <laughs> so those last two verses, you can see why there's, that's ripe for debate. I love it when Paul goes, and you know what's restraining him. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> how about you? How about you tell me? So obviously he'd had previous conversations with the Thessalonians. That's why he's saying, and you know this, right? Because he had, had been there ministering there for quite a while. Well, I'm not exactly sure what that is. And no one else is either, by the way, because you can read voluminous accounts on this passage and not get a straight answer there. Some people, right, one kind of obvious answer would be, well, the Holy Spirit. Right. Mm, I mean, I certainly could see that being the case, but that sounds strange, you know, to, and, you know, the Holy Spirit is removed. Perhaps, you know, there might be a way to explain that. Just sounds kind of strange. Um, one of my favorite authors, Beale, Craig Beale, he thinks it's Michael, the archangel, in addition to um, law, like the laws of different nations restrain him. And in the final days, you know, the law will be done. There won't be any law. And Michael will be told to step aside and let the guy. And that goes back to our Daniel. Right was it our Daniel passage mm -hmm. where he mm -hmm. said, I was fighting the prince of Persia. And, uh, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so it's it's not my purpose this morning to go into that in detail, but it is to show what I think the revolution, the French Revolution, highlights. Its real value for a Christian is to display the depravity of man, and to show what happens when you remove law from a culture. It's Hampton, your jaw is going to hit the floor at what happened during the French Revolution, what really happened. And that is such a powerful statement, a, such a strong testimony to how much God is re restraining evil. Even today, e even as we speak, I mean, if he let it go, we, we'd be annihilated in a very short time. So, yeah. Go ahead if you have. I'm going to say, it seems like there's less and less restraint these days. Well, I was going to make the same comment. 
the, the law, the actual um, function of the law in the last couple of years is it hasn't functioned at all on a national level. Maybe, on, you know, for the common guy, if you or I get a speeding ticket, it's going to function. But the law, as far as restraining our leadership, zero, zero effect. Right. I mean, as you can see, right, you impeach Trump for what? What did he do that was impeachable? Nothing. They entirely made that up. It's the most illegal thing I've seen. The whole, quote, trial, you know, that about the January 6th stuff that's going on now. Complete fiction. The whole thing. It's not a single Republican on that committee. Why, why do you suspect that is? Because <laughs> that would just slow it. That's the same thing they did in the French Revolution, right? They would just remove anyone who was slowing down what they were doing. And we'll see that. So your point's well taken. So with all that in mind, it's time to dive in to Ann Coulter. The name of this book, huh? demonic <laughs> and then you know the subtitle right how the liberal mob is endangering america but the the title's demonic and i'll tell you she knows what she's talking about again this whole i'm not going to read the footnotes as we read through the material but every every sentence just about is footnoted and i've looked at those sources so I'll try to skip where she's just being inflammatory, which I enjoy. I sort of chuckle when she does that, but I don't think that's really scholarship. So I'm not going to read those parts. It, even still, I got to read some of them because they're in the middle of sentences and so on. So I'm going to minimize it, but it will still be there. Here's her opening paragraph on the two chapters concerning the French Revolution. Our history is the exact opposite of the French Revolution and their wretched masses guillotining the aristocracy and clergy. It's become fashionable to equate the two revolutions, but they share absolutely nothing beyond the word revolution. The American Revolution was a movement based on ideas painstakingly argued by serious men in the process of creating what would become the freest, most prosperous nation in world history. The French Revolution was a revolt of the mob. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to skip the rest of that paragraph because it's just inflammatory. It's accurate, but it's just inflammatory. So down to the next paragraph. And yet the New York Times has written in this millennium, Documents like the Magna Carta of 1215, the English Bill of Rights in 1689, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen of 1789, and the American Constitution of 1787, and the Bill of Rights of 1791, advance the universality of human rights. This is on the order of saying, in this millennium, things like mosquitoes, moths, and DDT advance the universality of bugs. Why not throw in the Soviet Constitution or Mao's Little Red Book? See how I can hardly escape you right. know, reading? <laughs> to me, it's funny because it makes me laugh. So back to Ann Coulter. <clears throat> to understand liberals, one must understand the French Revolution. That's a simple sentence. That's, I found that to be pretty accurate. Once I really dove into the French Revolution, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, things became a lot more clear to me. It's much like, you know, where I really learned American politics, not that I've in any way exhausted that subject, but where I, I really learned how to be a little more insightful about that was from reading Roman history, particularly mm -hmm. through the eyes of Colleen McCullough, you know, historical fiction writer. She's really sharp, but, you know, keeps track of her sources and all that. You can go look them up at the end of her books. And when you get done reading Rome's history and then you look at America, you go, okay, I see what's going on. I see the big flows of the issues and, 
and the driving forces and stuff like that. When you really study the French Revolution, you will pick up a great skill in understanding the left in America. So as Laban decided or described mobs about a century after the French Revolution, Here's a quote from Laban describing the mob of the French Revolution. A throng knows neither doubt nor uncertainty. Like women, you can tell this was written a long time ago. It goes at once to extremes. A suspicion transforms itself as soon as announced into incontrovertible evidence. A commencement of antipathy or disapprobation which in the case of an isolated individual would not gain strength, become at once furious hatred in the case of an individual in a crowd. Think, think of that pack mentality kind of idea with respect to the last few years of our country's history. Yeah. Oh, Trump, Trump colluded with the Russians. How many liberals believed that? I bet every one of them did. None of that was ever true. That's all proven now. They yeah. believed all of that. Oh, Trump instigated, you know, the January 6th. No, he didn't. They believe that. Oh, the border patrol, you know, those guys are whipping the poor immigrants coming across the border and they'll show a guy on us horse riding you know with a whip it never happened never <laughs> once happened you know what i mean they believe that stuff because they want to believe it and it, it causes this mass you know a mass reaction you know where where you cannot reason with them they they've already decided you know they don't want to hear the facts they, they've already decided. So no, nowhere was that more true than during the French Revolution. Well, I think about uh, Louis L'Amour mom, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. coming after you're going to break out their guy. And the one sheriff is trying to stop the mob. And, you know, until he singles out one person and says, or two people, so I'm going to shoot you two if the mob <laughs> attacks. <laughs> then all of a sudden it gets personal and. Yeah. 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 Well, where where did you see the mob in the scriptures? I mean, at Jesus's crucifixion, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to have this trial. There is no evidence at the trial. None. And what's their response? Crucify him. Right. <laughs> right. You can't reason with the mob. It is. I love the title to her book. It's demonic. So yeah. more, more of Anne culture. Liberals don't like to talk about the French Revolution because it's the history of them. They lyingly portray the American Revolution as if it too were a revolution of the mob, but merely to list the signposts of each reveals their different character. The American Revolution had the Minutemen the ride of Paul Revere, the Continental Congress, the Declaration of Independence, and the Liberty Bell. The markers of the French Revolution were the Great Fear, the Storming of the Bastille, the Food Riots, the March on Versailles, the Day of the Daggers, the De-Christianization Campaign, the Storming of the Tuileries, the September massacres, the beheading of Louis XVI, the beheading of Marie Antoinette, the reign of terror, and then the guillotining of one revolutionary after another, until finally the mob's leader, Robespierre, got the national razor. <laughs> you like the way she <laughs> writes, you know, the national razor. Oh my gosh. You so, mean the guillotine? The guillotine. She calls it the national razor. So that's not including random insurrections, lynchings, and assassinations that occurred throughout the four-year period known as the French Revolution. All of that's just raw fact. Those events are what characterize the French Revolution. I remember reading uh, chemistry 
with one of my kids and the chemistry we were using was a little bit more about the chemists themselves and their discoveries. And I can't remember what French guy it was, but, you know, this guy was on the verge of this. He had just discovered, you know, something amazing and was, you know, just starting his career. And, you know, they come knocking on his door and hauled him out and cut off his head. And he was, you know, not at all involved in the, the revolution. No, we'll get to that, Hampton. Those those are not exaggerations of how sick that whole thing was. We'll we'll get to that kind of stuff in detail, all substantiated. Um, Like I said, your jaw will hit the floor at what they were doing, at what it's like when the restrainer is removed for even a brief moment and there's no law to protect a society. You'll, you'll see what happens. So as with most rampages during France's revolution, the storming of the Bastille was initiated by a rumor. <laughs> the mob began to whisper that the impotent, indecisive Louis XVI was going to attack the National Assembly, which had replaced the Estates General. For some reason, the people were particularly enraged over the king's firing of his inept finance minister, who had nearly bankrupted the country with Fannie Mae's Fannie Mae style accounting. See how you can't really, <laughs> you know, avoid. <laughs> you can't eliminate all that Coulter's about. It's in the middle of her sentences. Um, but I can say all those statements were accurate. Not that Fannie Mae stuff. That was just funny. Although it was kind of accurate, but I mean, the um, that Louis, she describes Louis as indecisive and he was, he was actually kind of a nice guy. He, he wasn't a monster as a king. And uh, so anyway, the rab needed weapons to defend themselves from this imaginary attack on their new populist assembly. So massing in the streets for days after the presentation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen to the Assembly, the people became more and more agitated. By the morning of July 14, 1789, about 6,000 French citizens armed with pikes and axes were running back and forth between the Hotel de Ville and late Invalides. I can't. I got to stop for a second. Hampton, you're going to hear me butcher about a hundred French words. That's okay. <laughs> I, I am, I'm going to try to say it how I would say it in my own mind, but I'll bet that's so wrong. I remember in a joking way years ago, we were in, uh, oh, what's the great park? Yellowstone. Yellows, yeah, Yellowstone. And some of the, you know, there were French explorers in the States. So some of those areas are still have like French words, right? Like the Tetons, for instance, we just say Tetons. Well, that's French for breast, mm-hmm. right? So, so they named a, a lot of that stuff. So there's this one point as you're going into uh, Yellowstone. And I was talking about it with somebody. I said, yeah, we were at Gross Ventry and they just, I mean, they just stared at me like they, <laughs> like I was a two-year-old, you know. And the, she goes, "You mean Grovant?" <laughs> I said, "Well, well, it looked to me like." <laughs> so I have no idea how I'm saying the French words. I'm just gonna say them how I say them in my mind, and then you be sure to just chuckle. Well, I, I was told just leave out most of the consonants, <laughs> and then it'll sound. <laughs> Like the the no the pierced nose Indians. Yeah, there they, you go. I Nez think it Pierce. looks like Nez Pierce, but I think I heard it was supposed to be Nay per se. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. So let me read that again. I've lost track of that sentence. About sixty thousand French sentences armed with pikes and axes were running back and forth between the Hotel de Ville, that's that's their town hall, and Les Invalides a barracks for aging soldiers demanding weapons and ammunition. Finally, the mob broke through the gate of the Invalide, ransacked the building, seizing 10 cannon, 
and 28,000 muskets, but they could find no ammunition. Then they rushed off to the Bastille for ammunition, and also because they considered the Bastille an eyesore. Once a fortress, then a jail, the Bastille was in the process of being shut down. It held only six prisoners that day, but the Parisian mob irrationally feared the Bastille based on its menacing appearance and false rumors of torture within its walls. With legions of Parisians banging on the gates of the Bastille and demanding ammunition, the prison's commander, Marquis de Launay, <laughs> invited representatives of the mob inside to negotiate over breakfast. They requested that the cannon be removed from the towers because the mounted guns frightened the people. De Launay agreed and the cannon were withdrawn. Meanwhile, the mob outside became more frenzied, believing that their representatives inside, lingering over breakfast, had been taken hostage. The mob interpreted the withdrawal of the cannon to mean that the cannon were being reloaded in preparation for firing into the crowd. As the mob grew larger and angrier, the Bastille's guards warned them to disperse, shooing them away by waving their caps and threatening to fire. The people interpreted the waving of the caps as encouragement to continue the attack. And so it went with periodic gunplay interrupted only by Delaunay's repeated attempts to surrender. The mob secured its own cannon and began firing at the prison, hacking at the drawbridge and scaling the walls into the courtyard of the Bastille. Facing tens of thousands of angry citizens, Delaunay made a final offer to surrender total control of the Bastille to the mob, provided it be accomplished peacefully. He threatened to blow up the entire city block unless his demand for a bloodless transition was agreed to. His offer was refused amid angry cries of no capitulation and down with the bridge. Delaunay surrendered anyway. The mob poured in, ransacked the entire fortress, throwing papers and records from the windows, killing some guards, taking others as prisoners. One captured guard who was marched throughout the street said, there were masses of people shouting at me and cursing me as women gnashed their teeth and brandished their fists at me. Delaunay was triumphantly paraded through the streets of Paris with the people cutting him with swords and bayonets until he was finally hacked to death, whereupon the charming Parisians continued to mutilate his dead body. A cook was given the honor of cutting off Delaunay's head, which he accomplished with a pocket knife, kneeling on his hands and knees in the gutter to do it. Delaunay's head along with the head of a city official, Jacques de Flesselet, who had failed to assist the mob's search for weapons that day, were stuck on pikes and waltzed through the streets of Paris for more celebratory jeering. This is the revolutionary event celebrated, celebrated by the French, the murderous barbarism of a mob. That's Bastille Day. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. The guy is trying to surrender every way he can. He's giving the guys breakfast. He's removing the cannons. They kill them all anyway. So does I have to read this. She's so funny. So that last sentence, right? This is the French Revolution event celebrated by the French, the murderous barbarism of a mob, or as Parisians call it, Tuesday. <laughs> She's so funny. Uh, the incident at the Bastille was merely a particularly aggressive version of the rampaging and pillaging that had been going on for works, weeks, all based on this or that rumor. Apart from the feral viciousness of the attack on the Bastille, the madness of it was the third estate that's the peasants and the middle class had already won themselves a republic. Under the old system, the French people had a legitimate grievance. The third estate, again, that's like peasants and middle class, 
composed of the great mass of citizens paid all the taxes but got none of the government jobs. Those were reserved for the non-tax paying nobility and clergy. Then she makes a bunch of comments about the United States. But anyway, when the third estate walked out on the estates general and formed a new classless national assembly, asserting that only it could make the laws, the king recognized this new legislative body. They had won. Like I said, Capet said, okay. They'd already had that, Hampton, when they stormed the Bastille. Hmm. So nonetheless, the people decided the utterly pointless attack on the Bastille had been a tremendous success. And so a few months later, Parisian peasant women decided to storm the palace of Versailles and murder the queen, Marie Antoinette. As Alexander Hamilton politely warned American revolutionary hero, the Marquis de Lafayette, after the storming of the Bastille, I dread the vehement character of your people, whom I fear you may find it more easy to bring on than to keep within proper bounds after you have put them in motion. That's Alexander Hamilton mm -hmm. saying he's pretty afraid of the French mob. You're not going to be able to control them, right? Does that mean so, for the Bastille or... Like right after the report of that. Okay. <clears throat> Initially, the mob had worshipped Maria Antonia, the Austrian princess, christened Marie Antoinette upon her arrival in France to marry the future king, Louis Auguste. Antoinette was young, only 15 years old, slender, fair, beautiful. Mobs like that sort of thing. So the people worshipped her. When Antoinette made her first public appearance in Paris, the cheering crowds were so thick, her carriage was frequently stopped for an hour at a time. The besotted, besotted Parisians presented the princess with flowers, fruits, salutes, and speeches all along her ride. Most enthusiastic were the common people. As Antoinette stood on a balcony, gasp, gasping in astonishment at the throng cheering her, a nobleman, Maréchal de Brissac, told her, you have before you 200,000 persons who have fallen in love with you. Huh. That was how it started. Wow. <laughs> I know. You can see the fickleness of a mob. Right? Mm. Do you remember Jesus saying, you're like children in the marketplace Hey, we, we sang a dirge. You didn't like it. We danced a jig. You didn't like it, right? No matter what you do, you're wrong with the mob, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus going, yeah, John the Baptist came. You guys didn't like him. I come, you don't like me. You know, and they were perceived very differently, right? One very austere, one much more lenient. The crowd hated both of them. Can you imagine Trump saying anything the liberals would like? No. Any, anything, right? What, what if he said, I'm going to increase taxes? They, they'd be mad about that. What, what if he said, I'm going to decrease taxes? Oh, they'll be mad about that, right? It's, it's a mob. There's nothing guiding it other than hatred. <laughs> so... When Louis Auguste assumed the throne a few years later, the masses hailed a new era of youth, freedom, hope, and change under their 20-year-old king and 19-year-old queen. You heard that before? Hope and change? <laughs> huh. <laughs> Though the new king and queen had done nothing and promised nothing, the masses adored them putting their portrait up in all the shop windows. They were the French Obamas. I knew she'd say something like that. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. But as so often happens with mobs, the people's passionate love would soon turn into equally passionate hate. As described by Laban, mobs only entertain violent and extreme sentiments. So sympathy quickly becomes adoration. 
And antipathy, almost as soon as it is aroused, is transformed into hatred. One sees traces of the phenomenon today. And she goes on, I'll skip all that stuff. Inflamed by the ugly gossip, as well as food shortages and fiscal crises, the crowd began to detest the queen. She was called, I'm going to try to say this in French, Le Autrichien, so the Austrian Chien. Well, what's that mean? Mm-hmm. Meaning, the, well, she's going to tell you, meaning the Austrian, but with the stress on Chien, meaning bitch. So two years before, they're handing her pastries, fruits. Oh, you're the greatest. Two years later, you're the Austrian bitch. She'd done done nothing. (laughs) In pamphlets and gossip, Antoinette was accused of being a nymphomaniac and a lesbian, of holding sex orgies in the palace and set off engaging in unnatural acts with her dog and infant son. They have those pamphlets in history. She's quoting them directly. Mm. They, they have no information of that. It's just rumor, right? It's, it's not even rumor. I mean, it's just, <clears throat> so let me pause here for a second. Just lies. It, yeah, so, so that people understand this. I think they do, but I just want to clarify it. When Hillary was running against Trump, the entire Russian collusion thing was paid for by Hillary from her election donations. So she hired a law firm to produce those documents. They did so through a guy I forget his name right now. If somebody said it, I'd know it instantly, but I forget his name. He's banned from the FBI and the British source. They've they've found him to be untrustworthy for his whole career. That's who they paid to write the Trump dossier. None of that is real. It's just a paid for lie. Literally. Remember like, oh, Trump went to Russia and got the room that Obama stayed in and had these prostitutes urinate on the bed completely made up how many how many liberals believe that all all of them right that it's that's all been proven now yeah that's very similar to what they did to marie antoinette remember when romney was running um it might have been against obama right obama's first presidency i think so during that election and that senator harry reed from nevada says to the reporters you know romney doesn't pay his taxes well so that's all you see in the papers for the next three or four months none of that's true and when that reporter came back to harry reed and said you know we we diligently search it he does pay him none of what you said is true this was harry reed's response it worked didn't it? (laughs) Right? The cynicism of that, they don't care whether something's true or not. They they care if they can smear you in public. So that's what was going on with Marie. Well, that same kind of thing with, I think, was it Kavanaugh? Yeah. Yeah. At the party, right? He's getting the girls drunk to take, none of that's true. And if anybody, when I say that, I, I hope people can understand my personality enough by now. I know it sounds like self-serving, but my wife will tell you this is true. I don't say things unless I have a really good idea that's true. Because if if I don't know, then I just, I have no problem saying I don't know. I mean, I've, most things I don't know, right? (laughs) I've failed enough tests in my academic career to know I don't know. So when I say that was a lie, I'm not voicing my political opinion. I'm telling you that was a made up lie based on research. So for instance, that, that woman Ford, I think was her last name that testified against, um, Kavanaugh at his confirmation hearings to be a Supreme Court judge. 
they first, before she took the stand, read what she had submitted ostensibly, I'm saying this in quotation marks, submitted to Pelosi to, hey, I have some concerns about this guy. And so they read that document at the hearing. Here's how you know that document was a lie. One of, because I listened to it, right? I'll turn on that, what's, what's that channel that plays C-SPAN, right? I'm watching those hearings and they're reading that document. And I had familiarized myself with the characters of the document. And she had a best friend that she refers to in that document, but her, the name of her friend was like a guy's name, but it was a girl, okay? They're reading, quote, that document, and they're referring to that person with a male pronoun. It's a girl, but they're saying he. In other words, she didn't write that. <laughs> they wrote it and put it under her name. It just makes you sick when you watch that stuff. That's yeah. what I mean, that that's all made up. The whole thing, they're just, so, so was the Anita Hill thing, was all made up. I'm not voicing my political opinion. I'm telling you, I watched that entire hearing. She was lying through her teeth, proven during the hearing. But all you're going to see in the headlines is she thinks the guy's a monster. Anyway, back to the text. <clears throat> and Antoinette was nearly the exact opposite of the image invented by the mob and passed down in popular mythology. She was genuine, charitable, kind, good-natured, more like Audrey Hepburn in the Roman holiday than Hillary Clinton pocketing the White House silverware. <laughs> okay, is that a fact or is that just Ann Coulter being mean? I don't know. That's a fact. You don't remember Hillary taking the White House silver silverware when their term was up? No, I didn't remember that. Go look that up. <laughs> so anyway, she was not given to excess, avoided ostentation in her decorating style. She was compassionate toward the poor. Antoinette eliminated the class-based segregating seating at the Royal Palace and often invited children from working class neighborhoods to dine with her children. This lovely woman with the gentle eyes, as Antoinette biographer Stefan Zweig called her, told her mother that what had touched her most about the cheering crowd for her in Paris was the affection and zeal of the poor people, which though crushed with taxation was overflowing with joy at the sight of us. She called such love infinitely precious. Even years later, when the masses abused her, Marie Antoinette still described them charitably as persons who declare themselves well-intentioned, but who do and will, who do and will continue to do us harm. So you're getting a picture, right? This often happens with the mob. They'll, they want a certain picture mm -hmm. of their political opponents painted regardless of reality. In, in Marie's case, almost the exact opposite. In Trump's case, I would say not accurate, right? Probably not the opposite, but not accurate at all. One of, one of my favorite examples of that is I remember, sorry, I'm going to rabbit trail this, but it it's really helps to drive this point home. Um, they were interviewing, you know how he used to run those beauty pageants? Yeah. And there, there was one black woman that was, you know, getting pretty far along in the competition and then got pregnant. And so they removed her from the competition. You know, Trump dq'd her and they were interviewing her on cnn <laughs> so i tuned in and they said you know they described the situation accurately and then said you know and trump dq'd you and the, the black lady said beautiful black lady you know, yeah, yes he did and so they said you see like what a monster 
And she goes, well, not really. And, and you could see the CNN host turn and look at the camera and almost Hampton. You did it with her eyes, not her hand, but you could see her saying cut. Right. This is not not what we're looking for here. And it, but they didn't. Camera kept rolling. And she goes, you know, I knew what the rules were. And that was stated in the rules that you can't get pregnant during the competition. So I broke the rules and Mr. Trump did disqualify me. But what he did was paid for my pregnancy and has supported my child ever since and put him through college. Oh, my goodness. And you could see the CNN, you know, like cut, cut, cut. Yeah. Is that the picture they want painted of Trump? No. no. Right. They thought they were going to get a different picture. But I mean, they do that kind of stuff all the time. So they're the mob. OK, so we're going to get to your cake thing. You ready? I'm ready. Marie Antoinette never uttered the words, let them eat cake. <laughs> Fittingly, that phrase came from the revolutionary's philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, our favorite guy, Hampton. Really? <laughs> that came from Rousseau, who claimed he overheard it on the lips of a nameless princess. So it is complete rumor. It's like third, fourth hand, right? This was written in his confessions sometime before 1769. So Coulter's not making this up that she never said that. She's read Rousseau's confessions where he says, well, I think I might have heard it from somebody else. Wow. <laughs> okay, back when Marie Antonia was still a preteen making mud strudels in Austria. Wasn't even in France yet. Never been to France. And he's saying he heard her say that concerning the revolution, right? Hadn't started. None of the dates match up. So, but the masses were upset by a hailstorm that had damaged the crops and impaired the food supply. So the French seized on this myth and it's lived on forevermore, just as it lived on forevermore. <laughs> that Dan Quayle apologized on a trip to Latin America that he never learned to speak Latin. <laughs> you remember the libs saying that? He, he never said that. <laughs> it's funny, but he, he never said that. So same with Marie, never said that write the quotes from Rousseau, who's talking about like 10 years before she ever got there. Wow. But, but it makes it makes good political fodder for him. So maybe the only thing that we know about about her is this saying. And then now they yeah. find out that she really never said it. Yeah. <laughs> so the mob was riled up. There was no time for calm reflection or consideration of the evidence. And so on October 14th, excuse me, on October 5th, 1789, angry fishmongers and other market women stormed the Versailles Palace intent on offing the queen. Called 8,000 Judiths, the rabble included some men dressed like women. They were armed with pikes, axes, and a few cannon, hollering that they would cut the queen's pretty throat and tear her skin to bits for ribbons. Rallying outside the palace all day, by evening, the rabble was half naked, having taken their clothes off on account of the rain, much like an audience at a Rage Against the Machine concert. <laughs> He's a great guitar player, but anyway, early in the morning around 2 a.m., a gaggle of women broke into the palace, decapitating two guards on the way. They made a wild dash toward Antoinette's bedroom, shouting, where's the whore? Death to the Austrian. We'll wring her neck. We'll tear her heart out. I'll fry her liver, and that won't be the end of it. I'll have her thighs. I'll have her entrails. All of that, Hampton, is footnoted. Wow. 
the dulcet shrieks of the fishmongers called to mind George Washington's exhortation to his men. Oh, here's the contrast. Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are free men fighting for the blessings of liberty, that slavery will be your portion and that of your posterity if you do not acquit yourselves like men. Does that sound like the French Revolution no. rabble? No. Oh, boy. Okay. So the queen fled her bedroom. The what a tease. The story will continue <laughs> on our next podcast. So we've gone about enough for today, Hampton. I'm telling you, it's we've just read the nicest parts of the French Revolution. We haven't gotten to the details yet. We'll get to that next time. Okay. So. Well, I didn't know a lot of that. That was very good. I know it's, it's really helpful. And I, keep in mind, so we've identified the sources and we've identified the lens we're looking through. We're not saying everything about the French Revolution. We're just providing the demonic perspective of a mob. So, so we'll continue with that perspective next time because the main takeaway will be when you learn this aspect of the French Revolution, you will soon look at American politics in a much deeper way. You will grow in wisdom. So that's our goal. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>